Today's scripture reading is from Revelations. Revelations chapter 13 can be found in your pew Bibles on page 873. Revelations chapter 13. Verse 1. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God, and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him preach this sermon instead of me. This is not a genre that we are used to. Well, unless you're into really big into fantasy literature and uh, videos or fantasy DVD. This is, you know, this whole story of uh, two beasts and seven heads and... Uh, ten horns and ten crowns and a beast from the sea and a beast from the land. It's not the kind of, it's not the way most of us 
It's not the kind of book that most of us read. So it's not automatically transparent for us. Now, there's a couple things going on. First of all, for those of you who don't come here regularly or haven't been here before, what we tend to do is we tend to take one book of the Bible, Old Testament or New, and preach all the way through it. So right now, as it happens in our preaching schedule, we're going through Revelation. Now, the whole of Revelation, from beginning to end, all 22 chapters, is written to a church that's undergoing very fierce persecution. They're... Uh, some of them have already been jailed. A couple of them have already been killed. And more are going to be killed. The author recognizes, realizes, the author's a prophet, he realizes that more people are yet going to die. So week by week by week, month by month, this is what defines their existence, is that they're being oppressed by the political powers. Some of them have died. Others are at risk. More are going to die. So the whole book is a response to their persecution and their impending death. As a result, if we read the book in a relaxed fashion, it'll seem repetitive. At a high level, the book is all repetitive. It's all about how does a church respond to persecution? What do you think about it? How do you deal with it? How do you respond to it? How do you act in response to it? So you could say, at one level, the book is entirely repetitive from beginning to end. But every section we look at takes, looks at a different angle of that persecution, looks at the persecution from a different angle, a different perspective, makes a different point about it. So this week makes a different point about persecution than last week did. But it's really hard to keep up with this if you're only looking at it. Do we have both mics on? Thank you. Which mic should I use? Okay. If anyone has wisdom, <laughs> let me start over from the beginning. Okay. Uh, in a moment, we'll be, this is not a senior moment. I, I, I've been like this since I was 18. I've been like this since I was 18, so it's not my... Okay. I say okay, but I thought that would give me, delay me a little time to get there. It seems repetitive. And particularly, you know, all you ever, if you look at it just from Sunday to Sunday, it'll seem repetitive. So what I've done is I've included a bulletin insert. Uh, I, I tell you this, although against my better wisdom, because I don't want you to actually look at the bulletin insert right now. <laughs> I know, now I haven't told you, you're going to be really curious. But there's a prayer guide, you know, the same usual prayer guide. But this week, when you go home, if you look, there's a special bonus. If you look at the back of the prayer guide, you will see a running summary of what's the question that each chapter is dealing with, and, and what's the answer? You know, persecution, to us, right? Because we're not persecuted. To us, persecution raises maybe one or two questions only. You know, why God and how long? But there's a whole lot of other questions it raises for people who are going through it. And so every chapter looks at one of those different questions in Revelation. And the summary then helps you to keep track of how we're going as we've gone through over half the book now. You know, what's the question of each chapter and what's the answer? So this week. This week we have the story of these two beasts. What I want to do this week is two things. This, ch this chapter helps with two things. Ultimately, it makes a point. And that's the second thing we'll look at is, what is this chapter saying to people who are undergoing persecution? And how does that apply to us? 
What does it say to a suffering church? And how, does that, how is that relevant to us who don't suffer? But the first thing we want to look at is this. If you have any background in studying Revelation, if you've read any books about this, if you read Tim LaHaye or if you read Hal Lindsey, or, you know, you'll hear a much different approach to Revelation than what we're taking here, than what I'm taking. So what the first thing I want to do is in this bizarre, picturesque, fantasy literature kind of chapter, I want to show you, this is a chapter which has more fantastic creatures in it and more fantastic things going on than any other chapter. But many of these things we still understand. So I want to take you through some of the examples to make one point. Revelation 13 is one of the most accessible chapters for us to understand, but, but it shows us, actually, it illustrates how to read Revelation. So first we'll look at how this chapter shows us how to read the whole book. And then we'll look at what this chapter actually says in, to, to them in their context and to us in ours. So how do you read Revelation? It seems like every generation gets this wrong. I've only, you could argue I've been alive for two generations, at least both generations got it wrong. In the 60s, Hal Lindsey wrote this phenomenally, phenomenal bestseller. It was called Nonfiction. Uh, using Revelation to shed light on the events of the 20th century. And he had clear predictions about what was likely to happen by the 1980s and the new world order and it involved the common market, all sorts of things. And I was a young Christian in college, my first year, secular university. I read the book and, oh, this predicts the future. And then I would talk to my classmates, okay, this is what God says is going to happen in the future. And some of this stuff would happen. Everybody get excited. Whoa, maybe there is some truth in this Christianity, you know. And then other things would happen that contradicted what I thought was going to happen or what Hal Lindsey said was going to happen. And then there's a lot of confusion, you know. It's about the future. And then, 19, that was 1960s, and then 1990s, you know, as the year 2000. If any of you weren't alive for, or weren't cognizant of the hysteria approaching the year 2000, you missed a, a wild ride, you know. The year 2000, all the computer time clocks are gonna, not going to keep up, you know, they're not going to be able to turn over to the new century, and all the banks, you're not going to be able to get your money, the financial system is going to collapse. People were really almost hysterical about the year 2000. And in the lead-up to that... Then Tim LaHaye wrote this great long series of books with Jerry Jenkins. Um, what Left Behind was part of it, I don't know. But there was 12, 14 volumes of this. Again, how Revelation predicts the future. No, it doesn't really. Revelation is really God's word to this suffering church in its time. How can we survive as we face suffering? Why are we suffering? Why doesn't God bail us out? How are we going to survive? What happens when more of us die? How can we get through this? Revelation is God's word to his church in the first century as they were facing persecution that may well kill many of them and destroy the entire gospel movement. Now, it has relevance for us today. But first, we want to learn what God was saying to them, and then from that, we derive what he's saying to us. So let me show you from chapter 13, first of all, how to read Revelation. What I really first want to show you is this, that the language throughout Revelation 13 is highly symbolic, not literal. It's symbolic. And then it relates to the, what was going on in the first century. 
It's easier to do this from Revelation 13 because we understand some of the symbolism and what it meant. It hasn't been lost to us from history. So take a look. Read with me. Page 873 in your pew Bible. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. And later on in verse 11, we're going to read, And I saw another beast coming out of the earth. The beast from the sea, 13.1, had ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns on his horns. And in each head, a blasphemous name. So, should we expect that sometime in the future, some beast is going to arise out of the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, maybe the Indian Ocean, and this beast is going to have ten horns and seven heads. Some heads will have multiple horns, you know, seven heads with ten horns, and each horn has a crown, and each of them has a name on the crown or the horn or the head or whatever, a blasphemous name. Do we expect a literal fulfillment of this? It's symbolic. And it's about the past. Remember, who was persecuting them? Why were they being persecuted? They were being required to worship the Roman emperor. Right? Where was Rome relative to Asia Minor? This was written to people in Asia Minor. Where was Rome relative to Asia Minor? It was due west. And how would the Roman governors, the Roman, sometimes the Roman army, sometimes uh, certainly the Roman governors, how would they get to Asia? On a boat across the sea. He sees a beast rising up out of the sea. What he sees is a ship bringing the governor, the appointed governor from Rome to Asia Minor, to Turkey. He had ten horns and seven heads. Actually, what he's doing here, what Revelation is doing here is, this is not the first time the Bible talks about a beast with multiple heads and multiple horns and crowns. It's not the first time. John is making a reference to something that happened in Israel's history. He's making a reference to earlier part of the Bible. He's making a reference that all of his readers would understand, but we don't know the Old Testament so well, so we don't pick it up immediately. He's actually making a reference back to Daniel 7. Now, Daniel 7 is a little bit different. We won't look at it closely. You can look at it later. The devotional has more detail. But, but Daniel 7, Israel is facing persecution. Uh, they've been conquered. By a superpower. And, and in, you know, Daniel, the book of Daniel, they're facing the same thing about persecution and then will we survive? Remember the Daniel in the lion's den and Daniel and his three friends, Daniel in the furnace? See, what's the issue there all is all about persecution with this emperor requires himself to be worshipped. And this empire has conquered us. Now we're being threatened. If we don't worship the emperor and the empire, we're going to be killed. Daniel dealt with that. So as the church in Revelation faces the same issue, John has a vision. But his vision takes him back to the Old Testament, and it's telling him this. God's people have faced this before. God spoke to his people about this before. He spoke to them in the book of Daniel. And if I want to know what God's saying to me, I've got this vision, but the vision takes me back to the Bible. Daniel 7, it tells me. I learned from Daniel 7 what they suffered and what God said to them in their suffering about our lives and our suffering. And Daniel had, a, had four beasts. And one was like a leopard. And one was like a bear. And one was like a, 
lion and one was like a cyborg. And now here in Revelation 13, you've got one beast, but that's part leopard, part bear, part lion. You see, he's making a connection. And in Daniel, it was four empires over hundreds of years. But in Revelation, all these four beasts have been rolled into one. The point of the first point from the whole beast from the sea is this. John is telling his congregation, God's people have been through this before. Your forefathers went through this. And they survived. God preserved them. In fact, what you're going through is so similar to theirs, the beast looks the same. It may be more intense, maybe four beasts rolled into one, but his message to them is this is not the first time. God's kingdom has been threatened before. God's people have been threatened before. And God preserved them. You can count on him to preserve you now. And then you have another beast, verse 11. I saw another beast coming out of the earth. Again, symbolism. What's the beast out of the earth? See, the emperor cult depended on two things. You had Rome, the Roman government, over the sea. It also depended on the provincial authorities. Rome worked through the local authorities. And so two authorities were involved in the emperor worship. One was the uh, Roman Empire, one was the local authorities. So you've got the beast out of the sea and the beast from the land. This, these beasts will have blasphemous names. Again, symbolic. What are the blasphemous names? In, Roman, in the worship of the Roman emperor, or in the emperor cult, the emperor was called Lord. He was called ruler. He stipulated him, that he himself was the ruler of the world. All of these are terms that belong to God alone, but the emperor claims them. So it's, again, symbolism of the blasphemous names. This beast, we're told, was wounded by a sword. Verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. There was once when, you know, back in the days of the Soviet Union, just before the Soviet Union broke up, they had a, hmm, I forget now, president or prime minister? President, prime minister. But anyway, Gorbachev. Gorbachev was leading the country. And he had a birthmark on his head. And so when people were looking at the future and trying to link Revelation up with the future, they said, ah, you see, you know, the, the, the red threat and the Soviet Union, this got to be the beast, right? And the, the, the dragon. And then here's Gorbachev. He's got a birthmark here. It looks kind of red. Maybe it's like a wound on his head. And so maybe Gorbachev is the Antichrist. And this is the kind of thing that goes on if we try to tie Revelation with the present, as if we would make it about the future. What, is it, what does it mean? The head was wounded by a sword, appeared to die, and yet revived. Here's the thing about emperor worship. Typically, except for the lunatics, you don't worship a living emperor. It's not the living emperor who's divinized. He's got to die first. And once he's dead, then his successor appoints himself son of God, which requires that him to appoint his predecessor divine. So when an emperor dies, the logic here is, how can you worship a dead person, you know, dead? Right? You don't worship the dead. You only worship the living. So the emperor died and it looked like the emperor worship, there's no point to it. Uh, but then it's revived 
and you've worshipped the beast who appeared to be dead, but then came back to life. They worshipped this beast. Who were they threatened with worship? Worshipping the emperor. Uh, the beast waged war against the saints. Well, no beast attacked the church. The Roman emperor attacked the church. You see, all of this is symbolic. And it's all about the first century. How about this one? There's a mark. Everyone was given a mark on the forehead and a mark on the hand, right hand. Verse 16. This beast from the earth forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. Now, if you don't read this as symbolic, let me illustrate the kind of trouble you get into. In the 1970s, books were circulating about the UPC codes that we use to buy things. Right? Every product now has a what is it, universal price code, UPC symbol on it. These were first coming out in the 60s and 70s. And Christians who were reading Revelation and thinking about it was the future said, this is the mark of the beast. You can't buy anything without a, a UPC code. And pretty soon they're going to put UPC codes on our hands and our foreheads. And then we won't be out of the shop without having a, the mark of the beast on us. No. Having a mark on your hand and on your forehead is symbolism. And it's about the first century. In the Old Testament, uh, oh, remember when the angel went through in the Passover and put a mark on the doorpost? Oh, they put a mark on the doorpost, and the angel went through and skipped over them. You've got this idea in the Old Testament. Uh, remember, uh, the Old Testament called them to put scripture on their, on their hands and on their foreheads. It's symbolism. It's like when we tie the old days, when people used to tie a string around their finger to remind them to do something. You ever hear about this custom? What he's saying is keep this stuff near you. In Revelation, God writes his, his name on his people's forehead. It's all symbolism. It's not like we're supposed to undergo a blue light and look at people's forehead and find out whether they're Christians or not. They say Yahweh, then okay, they're Christian. No, it's all symbolism. And so when the uh, beast requires a mark, what he's saying is you're going to have to pledge allegiance to the emperor. And true enough, it happened in the first century. Trade guilds. If you were a, a, a handyman or you worked in handicraft, you know, you join a trade guild. If you were a tradesman, you join, join a trade guild. And part of a trade guild activity, when you had a regular trade guild meeting, if you were joined, it's like the ancient unions, if you were to join a union, part of the activity was to worship the emperor as part of your regular meetings. I think about it like this. In Japan, until recently, I don't know if still today, every major corporation in Japan would have a patron deity. And the executives would get together once a year. They'd have a, a, the founding anniversary of the company. They'd get together, and part of the activity that they would do to celebrate the anniversary of their company was to worship the guardian spirit who looked after that company and whose name that company was honored. Which is why it's so hard, particularly for Japanese men, at least until recently, uh, it may still be going on, to come to faith because it's, they have to sacrifice their careers. This is the sort of thing. You have to pledge allegiance to the spirit in order to buy and sell and conduct business. It's all symbolic. Verse 18. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, this alone shows us that John's writing to his, his time. 
if John were writing directly to our time, he couldn't say this to them. This calls for wisdom if anyone has insight. They'd have no idea what was going to happen in the 20th century or the 21st century. They couldn't possibly understand it. He's writing to them using symbolism. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Now, after a year at a secular university, I went off to a Christian university. And every year when we had registration for your classes, they would use the numeric code to, you know, put us in, to tell us when to come forward. We all used to sit there with great anticipation when the numbers get up to 600. Because sooner or later, somebody was going to draw the number 666. And they'd call that number and somebody would come forward sheepishly and the rest of us would boo or we'd clap or whatever, you know. This is symbolism. In Greek and in Hebrew, they don't have number system separate from the letters. You use your letters to count. Alpha or Aleph is one, and you work your way up until, you know, the 10th letter is 10, and then, then you start in a, into 20, 30, 40, 50, and then you get up to the hundreds and so forth. So perhaps this means that the particular beast in mind here, if you add up the numbers of his name, it'll come to 666. And so a lot of inquisitive people have tried adding numbers in Greek and in Latin and in Hebrew, you know, for all three languages were in use at the time. And, you know, whose number, whose name, and, and you can manipulate this, and you can get all sorts of names to come up. Uh, you can get uh, Nero to come up, but only if you call him Nero Kaiser and add his names up in Hebrew, then it reaches 666. But really, there have been so many suggestions because we don't know whether the, the num names should be added in Greek or Hebrew or Latin. Uh, we don't know whether you should add the name alone or the name and the title. You know, Kissinger came up. If any of you remember who Kissinger was. You can, you can work with Kissinger's name, former Secretary of State for the U.S. You can work with Kissinger's name and make it come up to 666. All sorts of wild ideas come up. And here's the thing. That's not the point of Revelation. Revelation is not about the 21st century. It's about the first century. It's not literal, it's symbolic literature. And the only reason I spend so much time on this is because probably before you die, somebody again is going to have a very popular trend and they're going to start exploring how all of this relates to the middle of the 21st century and how we can tell who the Antichrist is. It's been done so many times before. That's not what's going on here. All of it's symbolic, all of it's about the first century. Now, if that's not what's going on here, what is? What is John saying to his church as it faces persecution? It all comes down to these two beasts. I'm going to skip over verses 9 through uh, 10. We'll, we'll look at that next week. It ties in with something that goes on in chapter 14. But, but the rest of the chapter all comes down to this. The point of it comes down to this. 13 verse 1. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. On each head there was a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled and so forth. Men worshipped the dragon because he'd given authority to the beast. So here you have a beast who's serving the dragon. Men worshipped the beast. Because, men worshipped the dragon and because he had given authority to the beast, they also worshipped the beast. Verse 4. 
And then verse 11, I saw another beast coming out of the earth. This is really the central point here. Why are they being persecuted? Why does a government, and one of the early church fathers asked this a couple of centuries later when the church was being persecuted still, why does any government persecute the church? In any culture, you generally can't find a more cooperative group of people than Christians. Our Bible tells us to pray for the government. Our Bible urges us not to rebel against the government, Romans 13. Why would any government persecute the church? What logic is that? The church is never a threat. It's not like we're going to hold political meetings here and rebel against the U.S. government. Why would the government ever persecute the church? Why would the government ever feel the need to say, hey, we're divine, you've got to worship us? None of this makes any rational sense. And the message of this chapter, and the whole question about why is the church persecuting us, the message of this chapter is this. Satan works through means often. And it's not the government which is the problem here. It's really Satan which is the problem. It's Satan that's behind this whole emperor worship cult. It's Satan that's empowering Rome. It's Satan that's empowering the Asian, local Asian authorities. It's Satan that's motivating this empire. That is not satisfied just to be a political power. It wants to be a divine, supernatural power. It's Satan at work there. This is not just a human evil you face. It's a demonic, supernatural evil you face. That's the point of this chapter. Very simple. The beast from the sea, Rome, is empowered and enlivened by the demon, by Satan. The beast from the land, the provincial authorities, they're empowered by the dragon. They're empowered by Satan. What's his point? How does it help the church to know this? Really what he's saying to the church is this. Your real problem, your ultimate problem, is not the government. Your real problem, your ultimate problem, is Satan. He's your enemy, not the government. It tells them to focus on what really matters. If my problem is the government, I'm going to vote, I'm going to riot, whatever it is. If my problem is Satan, I'm going to pray. Because that's the only answer I have. I can vote out a government. Maybe together we can take down the government. But we can't vote against Satan. And we can't take Satan down. So the minute you realize the problem is not the government, the problem is Satan, then you pray. The other practical implication for them is this. If the problem is not the government, but is Satan, then if you compromise, if you worship the emperor to save your life, who are you compromising with? You're not compromising with the government. You're selling out to Satan. Understand what this means. They're going to lose their jobs. And it happens in many countries today. Some of them will lose their lives. Their children will be orphaned. Their spouses will be widowed. There's got to be high stakes if you're going to face all of that and say, it matters, but I'm still going to pursue Christ. If you're going to pursue Christ in the face of poverty, impoverishment, or in the face of death, the death of those you love, it's got to be something dramatic and major that's going to motivate you. 
And so what John is telling his people is, if you compromise with this government, this is not a political compromise you make. It's a spiritual compromise you make. You're like Judas. You're compromising with Satan in order to pursue his ends rather than standing for God at the cost of your life. John has just raised the stakes for them and said, there is no circumstance under which we can cooperate with this government in worship. We can't cooperate with the emperor cult because to cooperate with the government is to cooperate with Satan. So he's raised the standard. And this is the message today, wherever the church is persecuted, wherever the church is, set, is told you have to worship another God, not your God. Wherever the church is told you cannot worship your God, you must obey the government. Whether the pressure comes from Islamic regimes or whether it comes from communist countries, God's word to the church is this. If you stop worshiping the true God to save your lives, then you're not compromising with the government. You're not compromising with some other religion. You're compromising with Satan himself. You just can't do it. Now, so his basic message is this. When a government demands worship, or when a government prohibits Christian worship, then it's empowered by Satan. Now, what does that say to us in our circumstance? We're not. We're allowed to freely worship. Our government is not claiming to be uh, divine. They're not stopping us from worship. What does it say to us? First of all, and I'm going to reduce this to two points, the first and the, and the third. I'm going to skip the second one. First and third. First of all, it really tells us to back down with the rhetoric. You know, I've told you this once before. I'll mention it again. Well, if, uh, let me skip it for the sake of time. I, let me give you a more modern illustration. I did a Google search this week. I put in two words, Obama and Satan, because I had a suspicion. I don't have a suspicion about Obama. Well, whatever. But, but I had a suspicion. And you know what? There is a website that will tell you, in, in his nomination acceptance speech in the Democratic Convention in, in 2008, he said, let me express, Obama said. Let, and there was a lot of clapping. So he said, let me express. And uh, there is a website where they'll tell you, you, if you play that backwards, you know what it says? What it sounds like? It sounds like, serve Satan. This website does not appear to be satire. It appears to take it seriously. Now, I listened to the tape of it backwards. And it doesn't sound like serve. It actually sounds like surf. And I thought, well, okay, that makes more sense because, you know, Obama, Hawaii, background. But, <laughs> but it doesn't sound like Satan. It sounds like Steve. But I couldn't make any sense out of surf Steve. And there's another website. Same thing. Uh, only this time, out of that same speech, he said, yes, we can. And if you play that backwards, what's it sound like? Thank you, Satan. Here's another website. This website address is called JesusIsSavior.com. And you got JesusIsSavior.com. And it shows Michelle Obama in a cover photo, you know, from Vogue magazine or some magazine, she had a cover photo. And she's sitting there with her arms crossed, I don't know, you know, just sitting there casually. But her fingers are like this. You know, to, to make it more obvious, her fingers are like this. And they said, you see, 
the, the author of this website said, you see, that's a satanic hand sign. That's a sign that satanic movement uses. So Obama, Michelle Obama, sold out to Satan. Now, fortunately, he was an equal opportunity insulter because he also said George Bush did that. And he had a picture of Sarah Palin, get this, Sarah Palin and Vladimir Putin. And he said both of them are doing this. And now I have never before heard the names Sarah Palin and Vladimir Putin in the same sentence, you know. These are strange bedfellows, metaphorically. Now, as it turns out, anybody here from Texas, what does this mean? When George Bush does it, what does it mean? Go Longhorns. Look at it, Longhorns. There you go. Now, the only people I know that would, in Texas that would think that, maybe the Aggies think this is a satanic symbol. But, I mean, come on. And, and, and this has spread around enough to get the secular media's attention. So some of you would know The Onion. It's a uh, satirical magazine that recently appointed uh, the, the uh, dictator of uh, uh, Korea, the sexiest man alive, and the Chinese government thought it was serious and passed it on. But anyway, The Onion... Yeah, look it up. It's funny. But the Onion did a whole article on how, now that Obama has won, how he's going to defeat Jesus and kill Christians. I mean, it's picking us up. Oh, come on, this doesn't help the name of Christ. This is silly. Now, what positively can we learn from this? I do think, you know, mostly what we want to learn is a negative lesson. Let's tone down the rhetoric, or let's not participate, let's not even, you know, let's, let's avoid, let's decry this rhetoric that associates Obama with Satan or any U.S. government. This, kind of, this is silly. At the same time, I think I would add one thought, though. Recent elections, or the way the culture is moving as a whole, not just the national elections, the state elections, I do say this. I do think that the trends in American culture urge us to be cautious. We should expect increased resistance to Christian values. If you, followed the, if you watched uh, Elizabeth Warren's ads against Scott Brown, now, obviously, her handlers decided that the way she could best uh, beat Scott Brown was to alienate him from the woman vote. And so she's pushing this abortion rights big in her, in her uh, advertisements. And then Scott Brown's wife, wife and children had to get on and say, Scott Brown's not against women. So the, the abortion rights was one part of her platform to, or her advertising to show that uh, Brown can't be trusted or women shouldn't vote for Brown. Now, that's just an illustration of where our culture is headed with, with the abortion thing. Gay marriage, you know, gay marriage is legal, but that's not going to satisfy people for very long. There will be pressure for everyone to say gay marriage is fine. It's likely that pressure is going to come on Christians. I think privately it already does. Probably on Christian institutions to hire without regard to sexual orientation to view sexual orientation as a cause for discrimination and therefore under civil rights legislation. We probably are going to come under some pressure. There was a time when the U.S. had a lot of cultural support. Even if politicians were hypocrites, they'd attend church visibly to get acceptance and vote. Now our culture is moving pretty far away from Christian values. And so it's going to be harder to be faithful Christians. And we're going to come under a bit more pressure lately, recent, you know, in time to come. Probably. It's never 
foreseeable in my lifetime or yours that we will ever come under the pressure they came under in Revelation. So it will never be appropriate for us to say that our government is aligned with Satan. The only time we can say our government or our politicians are aligned with Satan is if they're demanding worship or if they're forbidding us to worship. That's the only time we can say Revelation 13 applies to us directly. But it does have a lesson for us still. Its message to its original listeners was this. You know, this government is satanic. But it said, you can survive. God will preserve you as a church. Some of you will die, but God will be there with you. God will preserve his gospel. God will preserve his church. This satanic regime is not an ultimate threat. Let that be our attitude. As we lose cultural favor, let this be our attitude. We will survive. We can thrive. God's church has thrived in much worse circumstances. Daniel 7, Revelation 13. We can, let's not be paranoid about it. And let's continue to do those things. Not just protest abortion, not just protest gay marriage. Let's continue to do those things that our culture commends. Like caring for the poor. For the victims of war. Like caring about climate change. And acting on behalf of the orphans and the widows. Let's face our culture with courage, with optimism. Let's be known predominantly for what's positive rather than what's negative. Because Revelation 13 certainly doesn't fit our circumstance now. So let's be positive about it rather than negative. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray just briefly for the suffering church as it faces this sort of persecution for these sorts of reasons. And, but, Father, mainly we pray for ourselves and our leaders, particularly those who profess to be Christian, that we would not act as if we're undergoing this same sort of persecution. Help us to stand firm for you when we need to stand firm. And help us also to cooperate graciously whenever we can cooperate graciously. We ask for your wisdom as we serve you in this culture. In Jesus' name, amen.